ね。This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally. Or outside the immediate area, call toll free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. Welcome this hour to the Bible Line. If you are joining us for the first time, for the next hour, we'll be taking people's questions, maybe as you've been studying God's word. You've reached a dilemma or some issue that you don't understand, or in your personal life, you're looking for biblical counsel. Well, if we can help, all you need to do is pick up the phone. You can call us locally at 525-1859, 525-1859. We have internet listeners every week who call us as well, and the internet is available at wagp.net. We broadcast 24-7 through the internet. And some of those contact us via email, and you can do so at TBL for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net, or you can call us toll-free at 877-WAGP-980. The call letter is WAGP-980. When you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question, and we're happy to receive it that way as well. Rick, as always, it's great to be here today for the Bible Line. Indeed it is, Pastor. We uh, had a abbreviated Bible Line last week because of our uh, share and so a number of questions came in we weren't able to get to, so let's get to them right now. Okay. Darina from Augusta, Georgia writes, In Numbers 22, when Balak summoned Balaam to come to him so that he could hire him to curse Israel, verse 20 says, God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men have come to call you, rise up and go with them, but only the word which I speak to you shall you do. Then verses 21 and 22 say, So Balaam arose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the leaders of Moab, but God was angry because he was going. Why was God angry with Balaam after God told him to go? Well, that's a great question, and uh, Balaam is a rather interesting fellow. Uh, let, let me read some of the verses before it to give this a little bit of context here in Numbers 22. Um, we'll read, so we read, So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees for divination. Well, let me back it up just a little bit. Uh, we're told Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all, it, all that Israel had done to the Amorites. Uh, so Moab was in great fear because of the people, for they were numerous. And Moab was in dread of the sons of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, Now this horde will lick us up uh, as an ox licks up the grass in the field. And Balak, the son of Zippor, was king of Moab at the time. So he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pethor, which is near the river, in the land of the sons of his people, to call him, saying, 
Behold, a people came up out of Egypt. Behold, they cover the surface of the land, and they are living opposite me. Now, therefore, please come, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I may be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So the king of Moab obviously had heard about the Jewish people who had come up out of Egypt. He had heard about God's mighty hand in which he had delivered them. That was all over the known world at the time. And he, they knew that they were basically facing a, a foe that God was behind them, the God of Israel. And so he calls this guy Balaam and basically is willing to pay him to curse the people. And so the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees for divination in their hand. And they came to Balaam and repeated Balak's words to the hymn. And he said to them, spend the night here and I will bring back word to you as the Lord may speak to me. Uh, and the leaders of Moab stayed with Balaam. Then God said to Balaam, who are these men with you? And Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent word to me. Behold, there is a people who came out of Egypt, and they covered the surface of the land. Now come, curse them for me. Perhaps I may be able to fight against them and drive them out. And God said to Balaam, do not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. And so when these men initially come and they make a proposal to him, he says, well, you know, spend the night here. Well, and, I, you know, I'll find out. I'll speak to God and find out what he thinks. Well, well, there's nothing to consult God on. Prophets weren't for hire. Um, but God, in his mercy, responds to this foolish man and says, listen, don't, don't, don't curse these people because they're blessed of me. Now, understand Balaam is not a true prophet of God. Uh, sometimes God uses false prophets to accomplish his purposes. It's much like Martin Luther said. He said, the the devil is God's devil. Um, and that's a great theological statement that he made about Satan, because though Satan has a lot of freedom, he's ultimately under the sovereign hand of God. And so it is with, with a false prophet, even like Balaam. And we know he's a false prophet because of the New Testament commentary on him and the book of Jude. He's... Uh, given as an example as an apostate. An apostate is someone who walks up to the edge of salvation and then turns his back on it. And so they end up believing a lie. And so God said plainly to him, don't go. And so um, Balaam arose in the morning and said to the leaders, go back to your land for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. And so they go back and Balak again sent leaders, this time more numerous and more distinguished than the former. And so he comes back, they have a, another purse to pay the man, and he brings some big shots, you know, that I suppose should impress him. Um, and they come to him and they said, thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, uh, let nothing, I beg you, hinder you from coming to me, for I will indeed honor you richly, and I will do whatever you say to me. Please come then and curse this people for me. And so Balaam answered, and he said to the servants of Balak, though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not do anything, either small or great, contrary to the command of the Lord my God. 
And now, please, you also stay here tonight, and I will find out what else the Lord will speak to me. So it's like he's putting them off. He should have, the first time they came, said, no, God has plainly revealed through Moses, I will bless those who bless Israel. I will curse those who curse Israel. There's no way under God's heaven I am going to curse the Jewish people. They are God's chosen people. But he entertains the thought. And so when they come back a a, a second time with more distinguished people in supposedly a bigger purse, look, I'll bless you richly beyond what you can imagine. He says, well, let let me talk to God about it. What is he doing? He's playing, he's toying with sin in his life. And so he goes and he speaks to the Lord. And God said to Balaam at night, if the men have come to call you, rise up and go with them but only the word which I shall speak to you. So he rose up in the morning, he saddled his donkey, he went with the leaders of Moab, but God, the Bible says, was angry because he was going. And of course, that precipitates the famous event that Numbers records where the angel of the Lord confronts Balaam and his donkey, and the donkey uh, literally speaks. God uses uh, the donkey's voice box and allows him to articulate human words to express what his ultimate desire was. So Balaam only went because he had first rejected God's voice. Um, God had clearly spoken a command, and he rejects it. And so God, God basically lets Balaam follow his own heart. And sometimes God gives the desires of the wicked their way in order to judge them. And that's what God does with Balaam. Okay, you don't want to listen to me. You want to play with my commands and go ahead. Just just go. Uh, But don't curse the people. And in the process, he doesn't curse the people. But if you know the rest of Numbers and the commentary also found in the book of Revelation, he devises another plan. He thinks, well, since I can't curse the people of Israel, here's what you can do. And he tells the king, get some of your most seductive women and get them to go and seduce the men of Israel. And that's what he does. And they fall into idolatry and under the judgment of God. But that's what false prophets do. They, they try to scheme. They try to come up with plans. Uh, but it was displeasing to the Lord. So this is not contradictory. God just gave him up to his own heart lusts. And sometimes God, again, he grants the desires of the wicked only ultimately to, to judge them. So it's a great question, and it's not a contradictory passage. It just needs to be read very carefully in its broader context. 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. Philip from Derry, New Hampshire, would like you to put Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6, uh, in its contextual, exegetic, historical, and biblical context. Well, uh, let me say to this brother from... Uh, New Hampshire, who's just called, I just recently, because I've been preaching through the book of Romans, and Romans 8 is one of the greatest chapters in all the New Testament on the eternal security of the believer. And I believe I preached eight messages <laughs> from the book of Romans. And so it precipitated a question that often comes up on the Bible line, and it came up with some of our members. What about Hebrews chapter 6? And so I went ahead and preached a sermon right after we finished Romans 8 on Hebrews 6, understanding it 
and its context is critical. So I actually started the message at Hebrews 5.11, and it speaks of Melchizedek concerning him. We have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need of someone to teach you. The ABCs, the elementary principles of the oracles of God, they they should have uh, really been a lot more mature, but they were not. And so he reminds them that people who partake only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness because they're baby Christians. And solid food, he says, is for the mature. So he's speaking in the context to believers, not to unbelievers. Three approaches have been given to this text of Scripture. Some say, well, this is an address to Christians who lost their salvation and again, you can go online. We have a Search the Scriptures app now that you can go download for Android or Apple. Just go to the App Store and type in Search the Scriptures, and you'll see the free app. And you'll be able to see this message that's available to you. So at the early part of the message, I go through some of the texts from the book of Hebrews alone that teaches eternal security. So let's give the writer some credit here that he's not going to contradict himself, that he himself, who affirms the eternal security of the believer, is not contradicting what he said in Hebrews chapter 6. And you would expect that because he's writing under inspiration of the Spirit, and there are no contradictions in the Bible. Uh, Add to that, the second interpretation is that these are people who are not true Christians. John MacArthur takes this position. These are people who have come to the edge of salvation, but have fallen away. Um, I I would appreciate that interpretation because at least it's consistent with the rest of the New Testament. It's not contradicting what God writes otherwhere in about 150 other places in the New Testament that affirms our eternal security. So I appreciate it, but I don't think it is accurate in its interpretation. Because, again, he is dealing here with spiritual growth. And so six one opens with the words, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, about the Messiah. Uh, let's press on to maturity. So, again, the context is maturity. It's not people who are lost who come to the edge of salvation. And I go through some of the words that are used, enlightened and tasted, and partakers, and use other examples of those identical Greek words in the New Testament, always referring to believers, and even within the book of Hebrews. So, for instance, it speaks of those who have tasted of the heavenly gifts, and so some would argue, well, these are people who have tasted, but they haven't fully experienced. They came under the conviction of the Spirit and under His wooing work, but didn't respond in a full salvation way. Well, the same word is used of the Lord Jesus who tasted death for us by the writer of the Hebrews. Did he just kind of partially experience death? No, he fully experienced it. So um, again, what I would say, I spent an hour on this message. Download the Search the Scriptures app and uh, click on the sermon from Hebrews 5.11 through uh, 6.10 I, or 6.8. I entitled it, Cast Away Christians. And uh, listen to that message, and I think you'll you'll get an answer that will really help you and satisfy you. I appreciate it when I can just direct a person to an hour-long answer with a message that they can click on. That's the easiest thing to do in this in this venue today. 
525-1859, toll-free 877-924-7980. Email us at tbl at wagp.net. You can also call and go on live or dictate your question as Bonnie from Bluffton has. She indicated there appears to be two translations and interpretations of Ecclesiastes 3.11. Some say God has planted eternity in men's hearts and minds with the interpretation that nothing but the eternal God will truly satisfy us. Other translations say God has set the world in their heart so that men are unable to see all of God's works from beginning to end, just a small part of God's creation. Could you please clarify this passage? Yeah, it's a really great question, and it's one that often comes up in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, The NAS renders it. uh, Rick, would you bring up Ecclesiastes 3.11 in the King James for me? Um, All I have is a Bible in front of me. Rick's got his computer, and um, he can pull that up for me. In the New American Standard, it says he has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart. Um, read it, if you would, uh, out of the uh, King James Version, Ecclesiastes 3.11. He hath made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he hath set the world in their hearts. So okay, it- that's good. So the King James says he has set the world in their hearts. And the New American Standard says he has set eternity in their hearts. Now, let me say this. Um, if you read the preface to the 1611 King James Bible, they will state in the preface that when they uh, interpreted the scripture, that they felt like there were some passages and places that they were unsure concerning the proper English rendition from the Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic scriptures, the three languages in which God inspired the Bible. And so those men who set out to put the scriptures in English in an understandable tongue for the English people at that time, recognized that they had some challenges in Hebrew and Greek. And and here's one of the things that had happened over the course of the centuries is that a lot of people stopped studying Hebrew and Greek. And so during the time of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, and understanding the need for Scripture alone to be our final authority, men began to once again learn the original languages in which to interpret the Scripture. Now, sometimes in the Bible you have what's called a hapax legomena. Uh, Those are two Greek words that are used to refer to something that occurs just once. So there are some words in the Bible that occur just one time. And when you have a hapax legomena in your you come across it. Sometimes it's plain from the context as to what the word means. Sometimes uh, you can't, like with other Greek and Hebrew words that are used numerous times in the Bible, where you can go to other verses and other paragraphs in the Bible and say, oh, here's the word here. And, And again, context usually reveals the clear meaning of a word. When you have a word that appears just once in the Bible, you can't do that. And you can't chase it down in that fashion. And so you have to um, then go to literature outside of the Bible in the same time frame. And that's important in and of itself because words change over the course of time, like the word cool. Um, At one time in the 1920s and 30s and 40s, it meant just uh, temperature. But in the 1960s, it began to take on a different connotation. Well, he's cool. 
So it took on a new meaning. And sometimes words, even in the Old Testament time frame between Genesis and Malachi, which covers hundreds of years of history, their meaning changes. So you look for a parallel time frame to see how the word is being used in literature outside of the Bible. And sometimes that can give you a hint as to the meaning of the word. And so what's really interesting is that when the King James Version of the Bible was done, initially in 1611, people say, well, I believe in the 1611 version of the King James. Well, which version? There were two 1611 King James versions. First, they had finished it, and it went to the presses, and they completed it. And then they began to get um, other literature in Koine Greek, other manuscripts that they could study and examine. And they realized, oh, some of the words that they had uh, used in the translation process weren't as clear as maybe they thought. And so they came out with version 2 of 1611, which is what most people refer to as the 1611, with a lot of changes in it. And that's why in the original 1611 preface, they put a note acknowledging in humility that some of their understanding of Greek and Hebrew was limited and that, too, on a regular basis, uh, there was other literature and other things being founded. So when they translated Ecclesiastes 311, they said God had set the world in their hearts. And the later translations say eternity, which is correct. Well, I think the latter translation's eternity. Uh, But understand the King James became a predecessor translation for uh, the RSV version. So the RSV basically took the King James version of the Bible and tried to adapt it into a more modern English. And the rights to the RSV, they created another translation that was um, what you call an egalitarian Bible that tended to dismiss the gender roles in the Bible by reinterpreting the text. And so a very liberal translation of the Bible was done, was called the new RSV. And so they sold the rights to the old RSV to a group of Christians that produced the ESV. And so in the ESV translation, they followed the older rendering of this verse, say, rather than what the New American Standard did. One telling thing in terms of how best to understand this is how the Septuagint uh, translates this verse. So the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It was done around 200 years before Christ. And in the Septuagint, they use the Greek word ionion for eternity. Uh, God has set ion in our hearts, eternity in our hearts, because that's what they understood the Hebrew word to mean. So I, I again, the, um, you know, the Bible is inspired perfectly in the original manuscripts. There have been times in the history of the church and a handful of places where we've had some translation questions. What God inspired is infallible. Sometimes the translations have not always been infallible. Um, And that's why it's important to have conservative Bible scholars who are as knowledgeable as they can be translating from the original languages into the receptor language that they're translating into. Great question. Uh, Maybe got into some issues people didn't want to hear about, but they asked it. So I think we have a live caller. So let's go there, Rick. Indeed. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hello. My name is Tyrone Ellis. Hi, Tyrone. I I have a question for you. Sure. Go ahead, Tyrone. I was married once, 
and I wasn't into Christ like I am now. And I remarried, and I was wondering, is that a sin? Would God forgive me for marrying twice? Well, God can forgive any manner of sin. The Bible is very, very clear on that. And so when we we speak about forgiveness, uh, the Bible is very clear that God can forgive any kind of sin. The only exception to that in the Word of God is what the Bible refers to as blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said that's an eternal sin. That's a sin that cannot be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. And so he's very, very clear on on that. And, of course, that's a whole other subject as to what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. But it's obviously one that you've not committed uh, or you wouldn't be a Christian today. In either case... Um, when the parallel, there are a couple of places where blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is mentioned. One is in uh, Matthew chapter 12. I, I remember Dr. Pentecost said at Dallas Seminary, he said the key to understanding Hebrew, Matthew 13 is Matthew 12. Matthew 13 deals with the kingdom parables, uh, how God is going to uh, deal with the nation of Israel in the future and why he has laid them aside for the present. And the explanation is because of their hardness of heart that is described really here in Matthew chapter 12. Well, Matthew 12, you have beginning around verse 30, the sin of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But you also have it explained in Mark chapter 9. And so sometimes when we talk about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and what God can't forgive, we tend not to underscore strongly enough what God can forgive. And and that's important. People need to know that God is a God of forgiveness, that God is a God who loves people and wants to forgive people. And so the Lord Jesus plainly said in, in Mark chapter 9 that God can forgive any manner of sin, any kind of sin. And so he underscores that and makes it very clear, whether it's abortion or murder or divorce or divorce and remarriage or whatever the sin might be. Now, with that said, you're asking a question, is it ever permissible to remarry? And what you're really asking is, does it make a difference that I, you know, committed the uh, sin of uh, divorce, you know, before I was saved, or maybe you committed the sin of divorce and remarriage before you're saved, does that make a difference? And it really doesn't. Uh, people often try to emphasize that, but it really doesn't make a difference because God's moral law is God's moral law. Um, and so, for instance, in Luke sixteen eighteen, he says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. In Mark uh, chapter uh, 10, when Jesus addresses the subject of divorce, he says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another, she is committing adultery. Uh, Likewise, Paul said in Romans 7, For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. 
But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then if while her husband is alive, living, and she's joined, or some translations render it married, that's the thought, if while her husband is living, she is married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she is married to another man. So Paul is affirming in Romans 7 what Jesus taught in Mark 10 and in Luke 16, 18, that the only honorable way in which to break a marriage covenant is through death. Someone came to me recently and they said, now I divorced my first husband and and now I want to get married again. Now you need to know, Pastor, my first husband died. Do I have freedom to get married now? And the answer, of course, is yes, because death breaks the marriage covenant. Um you know, again, we can get into reasons why people get divorced, and many times they get divorced against their own will. They don't want to even get a divorce. But God makes it very clear, one man, one woman, and only death is to sever the relationship. Now, indeed, there are times in a marriage setting where it might be dangerous, say, for a particular woman to live under the same roof with a man, and the Bible recognizes that. Uh, Paul, for instance, says in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 10, to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. And that's an interesting statement because it is in contrast to what he will say in just a moment where he will say in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 7, to the rest I say, not the Lord. So on the one, he says, to the rest I say, not the Lord. To the other, he says, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. So what is he saying? He's saying, on the one hand, this is an issue that Jesus spoke to. And then on the second issue, he's saying, this is not something Jesus addressed in his public ministry that we have record on, but I am going to speak on his behalf as an apostle. And indeed, he gives God's authoritative word. So when he says in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 10, to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. He's saying, this is an issue that Jesus spoke to. And I'm going to tell you what he said, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, because God recognizes there are times when maybe there's an habitual adulterer or a man who's violent and beating a woman up and she has to protect her own life and her children or he's drinking away the paycheck or, you know, high on drugs. Um, And so there are situations where Paul can say to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. So that's totally consistent to what he said in Romans 7 that he gets from Mark 10 and Luke 16, that only death is to sever the marriage relationship. Now, there are two exception clauses that are recorded in one gospel. In Matthew 19 and Matthew 5, it's a clause of debate as to what it means I take it that it's found only in Matthew's gospel because Matthew is the Jewish gospel written to Jewish Christians who uniquely practice betrothal. And so when a man was betrothed, he was considered married to the person, though they had not yet consummated their marriage physically. And so Joseph is called the husband of Mary, though they had no physical relationship. And it's during that time when he finds out that Mary is pregnant 
that he assumed she had been immoral, and so he wants to put her away or divorce her secretly because he loves her and he doesn't want her to be disgraced. And, of course, God reminds him by an angel that the conception is supernatural. And so if during the betrothal period someone had been unfaithful, then divorce was permissible. We don't have that today. Engagement doesn't parallel betrothal. Betrothal was so fixed that to break it off, you had to write a certificate of divorce, and it was only allowed if one of the partners had been unfaithful sexually during that period of time, which usually lasted for a year. So my point is there are no exceptions today. So yeah, you were wrong to get remarried. Can God forgive you? Yes. But you need to deal with it honestly, because people give all kinds of excuses today. And what they end up doing is they cause other people to stumble. They say, well, look, if you were married to my husband, he was a bum. You know, you would have divorced him too. And so, you know, God just wants me to be happy. And we can't make excuses for the moral law of God. God's moral law is very, very clear. And when we don't make excuses, when we deal with it honestly and we say, well, and sometimes we do things in ignorance and, and, and we, um, in the callousness of our heart, we do things in ignorance and then we get saved and our hearts regenerate and we begin to open the scriptures and say, wow, that's so contrary to what the culture taught me, um, into what I had come to believe. And we deal with our sin and we say, God, thank you for forgiving me through Christ Jesus for this sin of divorce and remarriage. And God cleanses you and he's able to bless the second relationship. So you're not in a viewed as in a continual state of adultery, but neither do you make excuses to your kids where they have in the back of their mind, well, if it doesn't work out, you know, there's an escape hatch. It's not really till death do us part, but if need be till divorce do us part. And then I can try again. No, that's not God's plan. God's plan is very, very, very clear. So what you might want to do if you want to study this further would be go to download the Search the Scriptures app. Go to the App Store, download Search the Scriptures, and click on the message from Matthew chapter 19, Jesus and Divorce. And I think that would be really helpful to you. I appreciate the question, and it's a great one that he's asked. Let's go to the next one, Rick, this morning. All right, 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980. Or email us at tbl at wagp.net if you have a question. Angela from Garden City would like to know, are there going to be animals in heaven? And if so, what kind? Well, uh, there will be animals in heaven. Uh, Clearly, Jesus comes back on a charger and a white stallion. So uh, there's horses in heaven, at least one anyway, because that's how he's coming back. Um, Now, if you're asking me, did your... You know, poodle dog who died, go to heaven? Now, that's another question. Um, But uh, there will be animals in heaven. God made animals, and they're special. And uh, the way they are now is not the way he originally made them, just like the way man is today is not the way God originally intended for man to be. But, um, you know, unfortunately, as much as I'd like to see Fifi in heaven, uh, (laughs) the fact is, is that... Um, there's much debate over whether or not Fifi will be there or not. But I can tell you this, heaven's a perfect place, and there'll be nothing lacking there. And there won't be any holes in your heart as to, um, oh, something's missing here. No, it will be a place of total completeness and satisfaction. But I think sometimes we put more hope and stake in animals than we do in people. 
And you see this especially with unbelievers in our day where, listen, I'm not against animals. I love animals. I think at the height of our animal kingdom in Seabrook, South Carolina, we had nine cats and three dogs. Um, So I, I love animals. So please do not get me wrong. In fact, the book of Proverbs tells me that righteous people love animals. They care about animals. In Proverbs chapter 12, let's see here, verse 10, a righteous man has regard for the life of his beast, but the compassion of the wicked is cruelty. So God is not against animals. And again, during even the millennial kingdom, you can read Isaiah 11 or Isaiah 65, uh, you discover that there are animals there. The lion uh, will lay down with the wolf and with the lamb. And so there's a uh, harmony in the millennial kingdom um, that you will see in the animal world. The baby will be able to play next to a cobra's nest and not be harmed. Um, And again, God is compassionate towards animals. If you remember in the book of Jonah, Jonah is an interesting little man. Uh, He's a great man. Uh, and Jonah has four major parts to it. In chapter one, he's running from God. He's a prodigal prophet. In the second chapter, he's running towards God. He's in the belly of the great fish, and he's the praying prophet. He's running towards the Lord. In chapter three of Jonah, he's running for the Lord. He's the preaching prophet. And in chapter, uh, that's chapter three. In chapter four, he's the, the, the pouting prophet. And he sits underneath his little bush, so to speak, and And God said, do you have good reason to be angry uh, about the plant? If you remember, God sent a worm and the thing like wilted. And he said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. And then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. And should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons? who don't know the difference between their right hand and their left hand. In other words, there's 120,000 kids who don't know the difference between their left and their right hands. They don't know which is which yet because they're that young, as well as many animals. And so Jonah, of course, you know, people say, well, did Jonah die the pouting prophet? No, he died victoriously. That's why he wrote the book of Jonah. He's able to record his own faults. And uh, God used... um, Jonah in a great way to teach us lessons. Number one, that he is the God of the second chance. Uh, But God has compassion on the animals. And Jonah basically says, God, destroy the place. And God said, you're asking me to do something where, you know, there's 120,000 children in that place. You want me just to wipe them out? And you want me to kill all the animals too? God, God cares about animals. The wicked have no compassion. So there will be animals in heaven. I can't answer whether or not your dog or cat will be there, but there will be animals there, and it will be a perfect place. Let's go to the next question, Roy. All right. A caller would like to know if all sin is equal. Apparently this came up in Sunday school, and the caller thought she remembered a scripture that said sins against your body, such as immorality, are judged more harshly. Well, it is true that in one sense, sin is sin, and so... In the Roman Catholic Church, there was a time when, and they continue to do it to this day, where they make a distinction between what we would call mortal sins and venial sins. Venial sins, they would say, are sins of a lesser degree. 
And if you die only with venial sins on your soul, you will, for a period of time, go to purgatory. And once those are propitiated through a time of suffering, then you will go to heaven. Of course, that's totally inconsistent with the Word of God. There is no place called purgatory. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The Bible is very clear on this, uh, that at the moment of death, you are brought into the presence of Jesus if you are a believer. And the corollary is true. To be absent from the body would be to be present in judgment. And But they would argue if you died with a mortal sin on your, on your soul, then you could indeed perish eternally. Well, listen, um, James makes it very clear in a verse like James 2 and verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. And so God is so holy. And the thing that really grabs Isaiah the prophet and other people that write God's word, if there's one attribute that seemingly stands out above them all, it's that God is holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And so God recognizes our sin. And it's not the amount of sin that condemns you or how big or small a sin it was. It's the fact of sin. There's a very deadly poison that if you put a drop on your tongue, as soon as it's absorbed into your bloodstream, they say it will make your heart stop within a minute. It doesn't matter if you take a drop or drink a bottle. It's going to kill you no matter what. And that's the way it is with sin. It's not how much you've sinned. It's the fact that you've sinned. And sometimes people look at other people and they say, well, he's obviously not going to heaven. He's such a wicked person. But I'm okay. That's the way the Pharisees thought. They justified themselves before men. And that's why Jesus could say the prostitutes and the tax collectors really stand a better chance of getting into the kingdom than you do. Because those people knew they were bankrupt and they knew that God had to somehow rescue them. Where the Pharisee being the moral guy that he was, next to the prostitute thought he looked pretty good, but next to the infinitely holy God, we all fall short. Now it is true to get to the second part of your question There are some sins that carry greater consequence to them with others. If I go out and get drunk and get in a car wreck and I lose my arm, well, I've lost my arm. I can't grow a new arm. God can forgive me, but I can't grow a new arm. If I kill someone, well, I've killed someone. I I can't replace their life. And sexual sins, uh, Paul speaks to this in 1 Corinthians 6, He says, flee in morality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. There are some scars that we can bring to our person through sexual sin. So a man gets married, he goes and he commits adultery. And man, that's just a scar. And it's so damaging to a marriage and to a home. And it takes so long sometimes to rebuild the trust factor. And so there, there are sins that bring greater consequence than other sins, but all sin is damning. And any sin, and we're all guilty of it, makes us in need of a Savior. Okay, I think we have a live caller, so let's go there, Rick. Indeed we do. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. 
Good morning. Um, my question for Pastor Brogy is, I was married in the past. I was married for 10 years. My husband was very, not physically abusive, but very verbally abusive. And I was afraid sometimes for my safety. At any rate, I got divorced, but I wasn't a safe Christian then. And I don't know if it makes a difference, but I since have remarried. Um, since then, we have both become saved. We both attend church regularly. And um, I just, but I, even though I know that, that God can forgive me, I still sometimes carry guilt over that. And I'm just kind of wondering what his thoughts are on that. Well, it's a great question. And many times the reason people, and I'm not saying this is true of you, but I'm just speaking generally as a pastor who has counseled thousands of people in the last three decades. Many times there's an ongoing lingering guilt because there's not an honest dealing with the sin of the past. And so if you had come to me and said, well, you know, my husband is, I, I wouldn't typically use verbal abuse as a reason for packing up and leaving. But, you know, if he was, say, physically abusive, I might say, well, listen, you need to get protection. This is not a reason to divorce your husband, but this might be a reason to separate from your husband to live under a separate roof. And there are some people through, I mean, there are some people who verbally are so abusive to people that the innocent party, though I know in one sense there's no perfect innocent person, always takes two to tango, uh, but I'm just speaking here in broad general terms. Sometimes the innocent party is under such emotional duress that they're going to have a nervous breakdown if they continue in that situation. And I say, look, you've got to get a hold of yourself. You need to get under a separate roof. You need to go live with a relative or friend or you know, rent your own apartment, but that's not a reason, again, to get a divorce. But many times people get a divorce, as you mentioned, in your own case, and they get married again, and there's lingering guilt. Well, number one, deal with the sin. Deal with it. Confess it to the Lord. Don't make any excuses and say, Heavenly Father, I know your moral will was one man, one woman until death severed the relationship, and I missed your best, and so I bring this before your throne of grace. And this is important. Now, if you've been saved, and um, I take you at your word that you have, there is what the Bible refers to as both positional forgiveness and experiential forgiveness, a relational forgiveness and a fellowship kind of forgiveness. So there are many passages in the New Testament that affirm the fact that all of our sin, past, present, and future, has been eternally forgiven. Paul says in Colossians 1, 13 and 14, For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. A little bit later in the same epistle, he will say this, and you were dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, without going into a lot of explanation, that's what we were before we were saved, but he made you alive together with him, with Christ, having forgiven us of all, A-double-L, all our transgressions. And then he gives a beautiful word picture. Remember when Paul writes Colossians, he's under house arrest as we studied this past Sunday. He writes uh, Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and the little book of Philemon in response to a visit that Onesimus makes to him while he's there in that Rome uh, house arrest situation where he's chained. And um He says he's canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which he has taken out of the way and having nailed it to the cross. And so a certificate of debt is what was an instrument that would be placed 
outside of a Roman debtor's cell. And on it is what the Roman government dictated as your punishment. So if you'd committed some crime, say of theft, and they said, well, you'll spend a year here in a Roman prison, uh, that it would be dictated out there uh, on the certificate of debt. And when you had paid your crime, the Roman government would remove the certificate of debt from the door of the Roman debtor's cell, and they would uh, write across it the Greek word tetelestai, and then they would, with the signet ring of Rome, uh, put a seal on it affirming what they had written. Tetelestai is a Greek word that is found in verses like John 19 and verse 30. Uh, We translate it there, it is finished. And it's a word that means basically paid in full. In 1961 in Jerusalem, they uncovered a tax office from the day of Christ, and they found these ancient tax receipts where people had paid their tax. You can see them. They're on display in the Rockefeller Museum in Jerusalem. And when their tax was paid next to the name, they wrote the Greek word tetelestai. It meant paid in full. And so Paul is saying, listen, you had a certificate of debt, and on it were decrees, the commandments of God, that in one sense were hostile to you. Why? Because you broke them. You broke God's ideal. Uh, I, the God of Israel, hate divorce. You broke God's ideal. If a divorced person marries another, they commit adultery. You broke God's ideal, and those things were hostile to you. They condemned you. But God in at the cross, you weren't even alive, but God saw all of your sin. The Bible says he died for my sin. You say, wait a minute, I wasn't born yet. God's in eternity. He saw all the sins of the past generations and all the future generations. And as Hebrews 10 affirms, once for all time, he died for our sins. And he put those sins on Christ. He bore our sin in his own body in the cross. And he paid them in full. And so you could never again be tried for those sins. If you were ever rearrested in the Roman Empire, all you had to do was produce your certificate of debt. And so God took our certificate of debt and he nailed it to the cross of Christ. It's a beautiful word picture of how God forgave our sin in Christ. And we need to cling to those and renew our minds with that and realize that, um, one, positionally I'm forgiven, but we need to make sure, too, experientially I'm experiencing that. And sometimes Christians, after they're saved, there's sin from their past that they need to confess to the Lord, not to get saved again because that's settled, that's positionally satisfied, but to cleanse their own conscience from that sin and just to deal with it honestly before the Lord. I appreciate that caller and their question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. All right, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980. And uh, if you'd like, you can email us at tbl at net. And uh, Seth from Beaufort would, uh, actually, it's uh, Scott from Beaufort, would like to know that uh, in the... I'm sorry, we had Marcus from Lancaster, Kentucky first. Okay, uh, Marcus would like to know, what do you think of Stephen Covey's The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People? Well, um, remember, in one sense, all truth is God's truth, and that's just a fact. So anything that he comes up with that is, you know, good, uh, that's based on a biblical principle, fantastic. And he underscores some of those things. You know, he talks about... Um, you know, when you begin a project, you need to basically count the cost, uh, begin with the end in, in view. I think he says is one of his seven principles. So that's Luke 14. 
before you, you build a, a building, before you construct a tower, count the cost. He'll, he'll talk about, you know, priorities, first things first. Well, that's Matthew 6. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Um, he, he talks about some principles that are not balanced well, like we need to think with a win-win mentality. Well, that may be true, but sometimes it's a win-loss mentality and it's a loss for us. Uh, we no longer live in a Judeo-Christian culture. More and more, there is opposition to the value system that believers have. And so I've seen the transition in my life. I was born at a time when we had begun the transition. And so there was a time when people basically espoused the moral values of the Bible. Now they've rejected the Bible. And now they're rejecting the moral values of the Bible. And they're saying the moral values of the Bible are wrong. That's what our president, that's what our vice president, that's what many of our leaders in Congress have done by basically saying that homosexuality is not a sin, it's not an evil, it's something you're born with, it's a minority status that is to be recognized. Not true. It is a sin. I was witnessing yesterday to someone and he said to me, well, my son is a homosexual and he had gotten some pastoral counsel and he was convinced, well, he's just born this way. And he said, I tried to make him into a man. And I said, you know, sports events, et cetera. And I said, look, you know, if the truth be known, uh, your son probably had, um, as a young man was probably sodomized as many young boys are that precipitates homosexuality if they don't know how to deal with the shame and uh, and so instead of not knowing how to deal with the shame, they act on it, and then they move from a victim mentality into a participant. But lay all that aside, whatever precipitated it, it's a sin. God couldn't hold us morally accountable for drunkenness and adultery and fornication and uh, homosexualities he does in First Corinthians 6 if it's just something I'm born with. God would be unjust. Oh, yeah, you're born with homosexuality, but now because you're born with that, you're condemned and you're, you, you have no part in the kingdom of God. No, not at all. So sometimes there's not going to be a win-win mentality. In fact, for us to win in God's sight, we're going to lose in the world's sight. Um, he speaks about synergism, that you can accomplish more together than you can alone. That's a biblical principle. You know, Ephesians 4, it's certainly true in the church. Um, so there is some truth in what he says, but I don't like to promote his book because number one, he's a Mormon and Mormons are not Christians. And he wrote another book. I can't remember the title of it, but in that other book, he spells out his Mormonism in his full commitment to it. And Mormonism understand they are not believers. I, I was witnessing to two people yesterday and the other person said to me, uh, well, you know, I like to hear all religions, you know, Jehovah's Witness and Mormon show. I said, they're not Christians. He said, but, you know, I invite them into my home. I said, look, they're not Christians. Mormons deny every fundamental historical doctrine of Christianity. And Covey, who's now dead, knows better. Uh, they deny the deity of Christ, the doctrine of the Trinity, the infallibility of Scripture, the virgin birth as it's unfolded in the Bible. Uh, the the salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. Every major historical doctrine in Christianity is denied by Mormonism. So why would I want to promote his book and put money now probably in his children's pockets who are in turn going to tithe to the Mormon church to help uh, promote their false gospel? They, they at least tithe. 
you know, they're more obedient than a lot of Christians are, but they're using God's method to promote the devil's message. Well, we're out of time. There are several questions we didn't get to, but Lord willing, we'll be back again, and we will do our best to respond. God bless you. Have a great day as you walk with Jesus Christ. Thank you.